0: that, as I said this morning, it's Super Bowl night and that is a draw for many, many people and there are a lot of folks that put a lot of stock in watching the Super Bowl game. I don't have any any problem watching Super Bowl game. Matter of fact, I like to watch the Super Bowl. And so I understand the tug, but I appreciate so much your being here tonight. We're very thankful for your presence. If you're visiting, as always, we invite you back. We'd love to have you come back again. On Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, we're always glad for visitors. If you're looking for a church home, we certainly want to encourage you to think about the church here. We're going to be looking tonight at Acts 2.38. This is our verse of the week, and I do want to make very quickly one statement in connection with the verses that were handed out this morning or the verses that are in the foyer. Sister Lee brought to my attention Philippians chapter 4. If you look at the verse, the verse number... On that particular page is Philippians four nine instead of Philippians four thirteen, so there was operator error, and so we'll try to get that corrected and get that back to you next week. So just make a note of that that it's Philippians four verse thirteen, not Philippians four verse nine. I apologize, and we will try to make it right for next week. We are looking at Acts chapter two verse thirty eight, and what I want us to think about tonight in our study together has to do with the terms of admission into the kingdom of God. And what I want to submit to you tonight is simply this. The terms of of admission into the kingdom are still the same. There have been no changes in what God said regarding salvation to man. We'll go back to Pentecost and we're going to look at that in just a moment or two. I want to begin tonight, as we think about this lesson, this is a Crucial lesson, I believe, and we're going to be talking more about that in just a moment or two. I do want to make one other observation very quickly. We are very grateful for all of our young people here, and we're thankful for, we're thankful for their faith, their example. We're so grateful for all that they do. There are a lot of things that our young folks do that maybe many, many of us are unaware of. And as I've said many times, I appreciate so much Jared and Anna and the great work that they do. And they, Jared is, does a great job leading our young people. And we want to encourage all of our young people to continue, continue being the example that you are. Because you are the church of the future and we're so thankful for you. And I appreciate so much your willingness to, to do what you can to serve the Lord. So tonight we look at Acts chapter 2 as we think about the terms of admission into the kingdom are still the same. I want to begin our study tonight by talking about, first and foremost, the conviction of the people on Pentecost. I said a moment ago that this is a crucial lesson. Some have said that Acts chapter 2 is the hub of the Bible. This is the first time that we have the gospel being preached in all of its fullness. God had foretold of the coming of the kingdom. Jesus had preached about it. John the Baptist had. Jesus himself had said to Peter and the other apostles that they would be given keys to the kingdom of heaven. So we have this great day that has finally occurred. God, through the prophets, had looked forward to this day. And so as we begin, As we begin our study tonight, I want to begin by talking about the conviction of the people. As we think about the conviction of the people, I want to call attention to the person that Peter preached. So, with that in mind, pick up with me in verse 22. In verse 22, Peter, of course, is recorded by Luke. And Peter said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved or attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. First, Peter accentuated the crucified Christ, didn't he? And we talk about the importance of the crucifixion. Peter would say many years later, in 1 Peter chapter 3, that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, was the one who paid the ultimate price for our sins. He said he has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. You think about how central the cross was to the early church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul would say, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Peter would say, We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord, and ourselves as your servants for His sake. Again, writing to the church at Corinth, Paul would say the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, he would say, It is the power of God. So Peter here is preaching the fact that Jesus has ultimately died for our sins. Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we being dead unto sin might live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we're healed. The crucifixion is central to everything recorded in the gospel. But not only did he preach about the crucified Christ, but also about the coronated Christ. The coronation of Christ is referenced in this great sermon. Now, pick up with me again in verse 24. Peter has just said that Jesus was put to death by lawless hands, In verse 24, he said, But God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope. He said, Because you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make known to me, or rather you will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseeing this, spake or spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Now, let me just pause here for a minute. We talk about the crucified Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus, but also the coronation of Jesus. The resurrection of Christ is pivotal. It is fundamental to everything about the gospel record. Paul would write in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He talked about those eyewitnesses to the Christ. And he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, That if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is vain, our faith is vain. He said we are still in sins. So great emphasis is placed in the New Testament on the resurrection of Christ. Jesus Christ broke the bonds of death. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us He destroyed him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, according to prophecy, God would raise Jesus up and He would sit upon a throne. Jesus today sits upon the throne of David. It is not a fleshly throne, but rather it is a spiritual throne. And God had made this known back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David, the great king over the United Kingdom. So having said that, look at verse 33. Peter said, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. You remember in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, the Bible says that this resurrected Christ is now seated at the right hand of God. And He said, angels, authorities, and powers having been made subject unto Him. So Jesus today is reigning. Where is He reigning? He's reigning in heaven, isn't He? He is reigning upon the throne of David. And so He said, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, look at verse 36. Therefore, in light of what has just been said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter here affirming that Jesus is Lord. He is the Master. He is the one who reigns and rules in the hearts and lives of people, doesn't He? Not only is He Lord, but Peter said He is the Christ, the Messiah, the one of whom the prophets foretold that would come and deliver the people. Did Jesus accomplish that work? Yes, He did. As a matter of fact, Jesus acknowledged that he had finished the work of the Father, the, the work that had been entrusted into his care in John 17, verse 5. Now, I want you to think first about the person that Peter preached, but then secondly, note if you would, the power of Peter's preaching. When I think about the power of God's Word, the power of his preaching, there are a couple of thoughts here. First and foremost, look at verse 37. God's Word has the ability to pierce the heart. Note, if you would, what it said. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Some translations say they were pricked in their hearts. The idea is that God's Word has the power to pierce The hardest of hearts, doesn't it? Now think about it. These people had been guilty of putting to death Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. These folks knew about the Christ. Many had heard Him preach over and over again. Some had seen the miracles that He had performed. They knew about the claims of Messiahship. They had heard about His relationship to David. And so Peter is saying to these people, that Jesus has been crucified, He is now coronated in heaven, and as a result of His preaching and teaching, God's Word pierced their hearts. Now you remember the Hebrew writer said the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Paul would say in Ephesians 6, verse 17, that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And Paul would write in Romans 1:16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. These people heard the gospel and it pierced their hearts. Now note if you would, not only did it pierce their hearts, but it provoked their hearts. I think about the power of God's word. The fact that it has the ability to pierce the heart. God's word is provocative. It evokes a response, does it not? And so the Bible says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now we talk about how crucial this lesson is in the grand scheme of things. Acts chapter 2 is a culmination in many respects to the work of God prior to the foundation of the world. When God designed a plan of redemption for the human family. This plan of redemption has been in the works for years and years, centuries if you please. And now Peter is saying that God's grand scheme of redemption is now in effect. Up until this point, of ta- point in time, individuals had adhered to one of two laws. That is, they had lived under the patriarchal period. Others had lived under the Mosaic Dispensation Animal sacrifices had been made over and over again. They enjoyed forgiveness in anticipation of the coming of the death of Jesus. And now Jesus has been put to death, the just for the unjust. He has died for the sins of the human family, paid the price for our sins. As Peter said, we've been redeemed not with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. So in light of that, these people are now convicted. Convicted of what? Of sin, of unrighteousness, of their need for a Savior. Second thing I want you to look at with me very quickly. Consider the conversion of these people. I want to begin by talking about the command. The command to the people. Bear in mind, they have been cut to the heart. They have cried out to Peter and the other apostles. They want to know, men and brethren, what shall we do? First and foremost, we need to understand something about the authority of what is said here. Who had the authority to set forth the terms of admission into the kingdom of God? Did Peter and the other apostles have that kind of authority? Yes, they did. Go back with me very quickly and look at Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew 16, you remember in verse 18, based upon the good confession of Peter that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lord announced, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. In verse 19, he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The Greek tenses that are used in verse 19 suggest the binding and loosing had already occurred. Where? In heaven. And what... Jesus is saying to Peter and the rest of the apostles is simply this. I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Keys signify authority, don't they? So Jesus is saying, you're going to take the keys to the kingdom. When Pentecost Day comes, you're going to take these keys and unlock the doors into the kingdom of God, the church of Christ. So first the authority of Peter here. The authority that really sets forth the terms of admission into the kingdom of God. Now I want you to listen to what Peter said, and then I'm going to read a couple of things to you. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, note if you would, this is a quotation. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The authority behind this command, the authority behind this command was the Lord, wasn't it? Didn't Jesus say, All authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth? Did not the Lord Jesus say in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, or rather God the Father say, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear Him. So there there is authority behind this command. Having said that, I want to read to you a statement that is found in the Standard Manual of the Baptist Church written by Edward Hiscox. I want you to listen to what he said because I think it's imperative that we see this in light of what the Bible says. On page 22, under church membership, chapter 4, here's what's said, and I quote, It is most likely that in the apostolic age, when there was but one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, and no differing denominations existed, the baptism of a convert by that very act, constituted him a member of the church and at once endowed him with all the rights and privileges of full membership. In that sense, now listen to what he says. In that sense, baptism was the door into the church. Right or wrong? He was right, wasn't he? Listen now. Here's what he says, and I quote. Now it is different. Pray tell who gave him the authority, who gave them the authority to change the terms of admission into the kingdom of God. I'd like to know. Who gave them the right, the authority to change the terms of admission into the kingdom of God? Do they know more than the Apostle Peter? Absolutely not. Do they know more than the Lord Jesus Christ? Didn't Jesus say, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved? Did Jesus not speak with all authority, Matthew 28, 18? Did God the Father not say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear Him. Yes, He did. Listen again. It needs to sink in. There are some folks that will defend the Baptist church. Look, I'm not trying to pick on anybody. But we're talking about salvation here. Don't tell me the Baptist church teaches that baptism is for the remission of sins. Don't tell me, they say, that you have to be baptized to go to heaven because they don't teach that. Well, how do I know it? Because that's exactly what Hiscock said. He said in that sense, baptism was the door into the church. Now it is different. I want you to listen to this on page 21. Page 21. Baptism is not essential to salvation. Did you hear that? Baptism is not essential to salvation. Now listen to what Peter said. We're talking about the authority behind the command. Jesus had given Peter and the other apostles the keys to the kingdom of God. Did He not? Yes, He did. When they asked men and brethren, what shall we do? What did Peter say? Peter said, listen to Him, repent and let every one of you Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That is a quotation. It's not my interpretation of what Peter said. It's not my embellishment of what the Son of God said. It's exactly what he said. So, who gave them the right and who gave other denominations the right to change the terms of admission into the kingdom of God? Do you know anybody that has that kind of authority? Is it not presumptive to say, you know what, back then that was true, but today things are different? Let me tell you what, I would hate to stand in the presence of Almighty God and had the audacity to change the terms of the kingdom of God and to tell people, you don't have to be baptized. That's why this message is crucial. Now listen to what he says. Baptism is not essential to salvation for our churches, listen to him, and I'll quote, our churches utterly repudiate the dogma of baptismal generation regeneration. Do you know what they're saying? You know what he's saying? He's saying that baptism is not essential to salvation. You don't need to be baptized to go to heaven. And he is saying we utterly repudiate this doctrine. Well let me tell you what you just utterly repudiated the divine son of god. You just repudiated what the apostle Peter said and Peter spoke by authority. He was speaking by inspiration of the holy spirit, wasn't he? Look at Acts chapter 2 verse 4. In Acts chapter 2 verse 4, they were all filled with the holy spirit began to speak with other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. We're talking about an inspired apostle. Jesus had said, how be it when the Spirit of truth has come, He'll guide you into all truth. Did Peter know what he was talking about? Yes, he did. Did he speak by the authority of Christ? Yes, he did. Now can you believe? Can you believe that people would have the audacity to change the terms of admission into the kingdom of God? Now you know when people talk about how much they love the Lord and how much they love His Word and how much they love this and that and then, and then they come along and undermine the very teaching of Almighty God? It says something, doesn't it? Let me read for you. Now, look, I'm not trying to pick on any one denomination The reason I read this is because you need to hear it. People need to hear it in the world. When this fellow said, the terms of admission have changed, things are different today. Oh, yeah? Let me me just ask you, who gave you that right? Who gave you that authority? And I'll ask that to any person in the religious world. Because we we don't have the right, we don't have the authority to change the terms of the kingdom of God, do we? Let me read for you. This is a card that was printed in South Haven, Mississippi or printed for a church in South Haven, Mississippi. And I'm going to read to you what they say regarding how to become a Christian. See if it fits with what Peter said. If you believe what the Bible says and would like to ask the Lord Jesus to be your Savior, sincerely pray this prayer to God. Dear Lord... I realize I'm a sinner, that you died on the cross to pay for my sin. Please forgive my sin. Come into my heart and save me. I trust you alone to take me to heaven. Thank you for saving me, Jesus. Amen. Is that what Peter said? Is that what Peter said? That is so foreign to the the tenor of New Testament Christianity It's not within a hundred miles of what Jesus taught. Nor what Peter taught. Look, this has serious, serious implications. The reason we need to hear what people teach is because when we talk to them about the gospel, they've got to understand up front, look, we don't have the right to change the terms of admission into the kingdom of God. Now we talk about the authority behind the command. And then, note if you would, the aim of this command. Before I read further from Mr. Hiscox, I want you to listen to what Peter said. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. What Peter is saying is that the aim of New Testament baptism is so that a person might enjoy the benefits and the blessings of the blood of Jesus. Jesus shed His blood in death. When we're baptized into Christ, we contact or appropriate that blood, do we not? Do you remember Paul placed salvation in Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10? Jesus shed His blood on Calvary, John 19, 34 and 35. If we're going to contact the blood, we must go where it was shed. It was shed in death. That's why Paul said, No, you're not that all we who are baptized into Christ were baptized into His death. So when we're baptized into Christ, we contact the blood of Christ, and we enjoy the forgiveness or remission of our sins. Listen again to Mr. Hiscox. Baptism is not essential to salvation, for our churches utterly repudiate the dogma of baptismal regeneration. But it is essential to obedience since Christ has commanded it. That's a contradiction. Absolute contradiction of terms. Look, what they want to say is baptism is an outward sign of your inward faith. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible nowhere has taught that. The Bible teaches that baptism is for salvation, Mark 16, 16. The Bible teaches baptism is for the remission of sins, Acts 2, verse 38. The Bible teaches that baptism is for the washing away of sins. Acts chapter 22, verse 16. The Bible teaches that baptism is the point at which God places us in the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Baptism is not for saved people. That's what they're saying. That once you're saved, then you're baptized. They got the cart before the horse. Somebody says, well, it really doesn't matter. Let me ask you this. Let's just say you go down and you decide to draw money out of your bank account. And you want to take $300 out of your bank account. And they say, well, you don't have any money in your bank account. And you say, well, I'll put it in next week, but I'd like my $300 today. Does that matter? (laughs) You better believe it. You got the cart before the horse. You put the money in, then you take the money out, don't you? So when we're baptized into Christ, it's then and only then that we contact the blood of Jesus. You can't be saved outside of Jesus Christ no more than you can be saved outside the blood of Christ, no more than you can be saved outside the church of Christ. And the church of Christ is a church that belongs to Jesus. Now somebody says, you know what, this is some tough teaching. This is hard. I will grant. It's hard. And it's tough. And what has been said is sometimes difficult to to digest. But still the truth. And you need to hear the truth. I need to hear the truth. We all need to hear the truth. Do Do we want to honor what the Lord has said? Or do we want to honor what the world says? That's really a choice. That's really what it comes down to. Now, when you think about, for example, what I just read to you, in the denominational world at large, most folks will tell you to become a Christian. Here's what you do. You receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart. You recite a prayer just like I quoted a moment ago, and you're saved. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible has never taught that. And nobody has the right to change the terms of admission into the kingdom of God. Somebody says, well, you know what? This is what I did, and I became a Christian. You didn't become a Christian by doing that. Somebody might think they are a Christian, but they're not a child of God according to the New Testament. We're interested in truth. Only truth will set you free. There is a difference between a counterfeit $100 bill and a genuine $100 bill. Would you agree with that? There is a difference between a genuine Christian that has obeyed the gospel outlined in the Bible, and somebody who has done something else and claims to be a Christian. They're a counterfeit. They may not know it, but that's what they are. They're a counterfeit. Now, I said a moment ago, this is tough. And I know that there are a lot of folks that get mad when they hear stuff like this. Look, I'm not here to hurt anybody. I'm here to try to help. But I do you no service by withholding the truth of God. My job is to preach the gospel in simplicity, in purity, with the understanding that one day I'm going to stand before God and give an account of what I have taught. I am not going to teach something that does not coincide with the apostles' doctrine. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to risk my salvation and tell you something other than what the Bible teaches. You know, the devil is a liar and the father of it, John 8, 44. Can the devil use religion to deceive people? Yes or no? Yes, he can. Is he effective at it? Yes, He is. There is a difference. Now, I said a minute ago, the terms of admission into the kingdom are still the same. They haven't changed. Man may change. Look, think about it like this. This is the last will and testament of the Lord, isn't it? Do we have any appendages to the New Testament saying, you know what, we've decided to go back and change what was recorded with regard to the terms of admission. Any any appendages that you know of in the New Testament sanctioned by the Lord? Any alterations? Can you think of any alterations that have been set forth by the Lord Jesus Christ that have been tagged on to the New Testament where the Lord says, by the way, I've changed what was recorded in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. You need to make a notation of that. No alterations. No appendages. It is what it is. I don't have time to go into my third point tonight. So. I didn't realize that I went so long already. Look, I want you to see the truth. And, and I really, I, look, I know sometimes I come on really strong. And I understand that sometimes I, I might appear like a madman up here. I, I don't mean to be like that. But look, we're talking about truth. And I'm trying to fight for God to get His say in, and I want people to become New Testament Christians. And so, when you look at Acts chapter two, what do we have? We have a template, do we not? When they obeyed the gospel, do you know what the Lord did? He added them to the church. Do you see how simple that is? They they weren't voted into the church. They didn't take a poll and decide, okay, we're going we're to let you in, but you know what, maybe we, we may just think about your candidacy for another week or two. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So I've got a question for you tonight. Have you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine delivered to you? Romans chapter 6 if you haven't obeyed the apostles' doctrine, listen, if you've done something other than what the Bible teaches, you're not a Christian. You're not a child of God. Your sins haven't been forgiven. You've not been added to the body of Christ. And you won't go to heaven. Are we clear? I hope crystal. We need to to understand. I know sometimes people come in, they float out, and it goes right over their head. I don't want anybody to miss what I'm saying tonight. I don't care if you're young or old. I don't care. I don't care about any of that. What I care about is you obeying the gospel. Sometimes sometimes Folks talk too much and they don't listen enough. And that's why they don't know what the gospel teaches. People try to teach them, but they try to talk, and they never listen to what the Bible teaches. I want people to know unequivocally, this is what the Bible teaches. I'm not going to water it down. And we talk about the devil. Do you know why the devil doesn't want you to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins? Because he knows you'll burn better if you're dry. You think about that. The devil knows you'll burn better if you're dry. You need to obey the gospel. If you haven't done that, you need to do it today. Today's a day of salvation. If you're here tonight and you haven't responded to the the gospel, I encourage you to do so. If you're here tonight and you're unfaithful to his cause, my plea to you, come home. Come back to the Lord who loves you and wants you to be saved as we stand and sing.